Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Joanne Hill from the University of Bedfordshire in Bedford in the UK. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about her article with, uh, with Rachel Sanford and Amir Enright titled, It Has Really Amazed Me What My Body Can Now Do, Boundary Work and the Construction of a Body Positive Dance Community. Uh, I'll put the full site into the notes section and so you can find the full article there. And uh, Joanne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Risto. Thanks very much for having me. So, in the article, uh, it was really interesting to me first because, uh, you know, I, I, to I told you a little bit earlier that my, my wife was a really, like, high-level dancer for a while, and she's, you know, danced all throughout her life, and it's very special to her. So when I said that I was doing this, um, this article about, uh, about dance... She said that this would probably be the only podcast that she'll listen to out of the 160 so that we've done. So, um, but I wanted to start off just with a kind of overview question. Um, so, if you can talk about how our culture in general constructs like the male and female body, and we can maybe start from there. Yeah. So um, we are thinking about the concept of physical. Culture. If we think if we start from there about um, what what we think of as being physical culture, there's like three areas of um, movement, three ways of talking about sport, um, exercise, and leisure or recreation. And so, if we start by thinking about physical culture, we can think about recognizing the cultures that surround and construct those spaces of sport, physical activity, exercise, leisure, recreation. Would have to say all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, and within physical cultures, then there's a, like a range of practices that regulate the body in movement spaces. There's certain ways of acting, maintaining the body within those spaces, within those cultures. And some physical cultures are gendered. So we think of dance as being one of those spaces that's quite gendered. Others are too. Um, and gender is regulate. Sorry, gender is regulated in physical culture. So our ways of acting, maintaining the body how we present our bodies are gendered. Um, so and like, like physical cultures are sort of invested in people maintaining gender and it's a binary of gender. So we've got like within mainstream physical cultures, we've got this gender binary. So one that is invested in people maintaining this binary. Masculine is op in opposition to feminine and fairly strict definitions of what masculine is and looks like and the same for feminine. So ways of being and acting and regulating the body, maintaining what that body looks like, what it does, its behaviors uh, are maintained in this binary system on the whole in this kind of mainstream physical culture. So physical cultures do this and, and within dance, there's a particular kind of archetypes of what masculine is supposed to look like and what feminine is supposed to look like. And so the masculine being a very strong sort of muscular, um, body a lot of the time and feminine is constructed as weak and submissive so yeah when we talk about gender is this binary it's the socially constructed view of ways of being and acting that are constructed in in opposition and uh, can't really exist anywhere else in between on the whole in the mainstream kind of view yeah and i and i thought it was a good example of what you talked about in ballet of having this idea of a very feminine uh like 
women are allowed to do certain things that men are not allowed to do. And I, I, I was brought into this understanding through, through my wife who kind of like, when I went to my first ballet with her, I was like, why aren't the guys dancing on their toes? <laughs> kind of like this, like naive question. And it's like, oh, that's not, that's for women. Like women, like ballerinas dance on their toes. They dance on point. And that's not something that the men do. And so it, in, and you know, you look at the, bulky muscular man dancing versus how graceful and lean and like more petite the the uh the ballerinas are so i thought you did a really good uh kind of explanation in the beginning because ballet is so gendered and i think you know we'll get into the conversation later because i think you know some of the participants in the study talked about like in in, in reverent dance that men were allowed to actually dance on point if they wanted to. There were no kind of restrictions. Um, but as I go on these side tangents here, let me, let me go back to the question here. Um, in, in your explanation, you, tran uh, you talk about transfer to sport and you talk about Boudreaux uh, and, their, and his concept of habitus. So can you kind of tell us a little bit more about the understanding of what habitus is and how it works? Yeah, so, um, I mean, what you've just said about, like, men doing, don't do not do dancing on point, it's just like, that's just not done. They don't do it. Um, can't fit in in that way. So that idea of fitting in and having to do what you are told to do um, kind of segues into thinking about Pierre Bourdieu's work here as well, yeah. So um, Bourdieu's got this uh, this idea of habitus and capital and field, and those three things work together. And it's about thinking about fitting in and there being a space for you within a particular culture, I suppose. So it helps us to illustrate um, what our dispositions and habits might be or our, our tastes. So if we think about each of these three things within the triangle, um, we'll start with habitus. Um, we've got our kind of tastes and dispositions. Um, what do I like? What do I do? What's my behaviours? Um, what am I predisposed to? enjoying and wanting to do and they're quite um embodied and durable so he uses this term habitus to mean those kinds of behaviors and dispositions that are embodied they're durable over time uh, and he talked about this idea of writing society on the body so we regulate our own bodies and our cultures kind of get, get us to do this by um encouraging us to have a taste for something, to have a disposition towards something that we are allowed to have and rejecting what is denied to us anyway. So that idea of habitus is that, is sort of taste and dispositions. And then we want to think about within, it's within particular fields um, or physical cultures. We think that physical cultures can relate to fields. Um, so a field can be a space, it might be a physical or an abstract space. So within different fields, there will be different dispositions that are valued. So let's take the field of dance. There will be certain dispositions, certain ways of acting and moving that are valued in that field. And then in another field that's not dance, uh, hockey will have a particular set of dispositions mm -hmm. that are valued within that field as well. And that idea of value then relates to the third part of the triangle, which is capital. So to have value in a field, you need to have capital. Um, Budget 
talked about three types of capital, social, cultural and economic capitals. And you um, you have those and then use them at different times and you can exchange different, you can exchange capital, like social capital for economic capital and vice versa. Chris Schilling more recently has then taken that idea and added physical capital. And I think that's quite useful within physical cultures to think about what physical capital is and what's valued within a sport and physical activity field, a physical culture, what's valued in that field. So our dispositions and habits or habitus, the way we embody those dispositions are valued differently and can that capital can be exchanged in different ways depending on the field that we're in. And it's got cultural kinds of things around it. Now, some people have, have accused budget of being a bit too embedded, a bit too fixed, of saying habitus sounds too durable. It sounds like you can't make any changes to it. But then there's other people that say, well, actually, no, the concept of habitus is not overly constraining. Yeah, it's durable, it's structured, but it's not unchanging. And for me, I think it's because of when we... Um, shift from one field to another when we cross that boundary that's when you become aware of your habitus mm -hmm. it's at the boundary of two fields that you become aware of your habitus so we think of a metaphor for this like a fish in water doesn't realize it's in water until uh, it let's say it jumps out or it's caught in a net and comes into the air and then it realizes that it was in water mm -hmm. and now it's not um, so we, are re we, we can be reflexive at those boundaries, at those borders between different fields. And for me, that's when we can sh change our habitus. Um, we could become aware of it. What were our tastes? What was our position in that field? And when we move to a different field, we become aware of those things and we can maybe work to change our habits or our dispositions. Yeah. Uh, so what did you actually do in this study? I I know that you used appreciative inquiry, which to me, when I read it, it like it really rang true to me because it has this like kind of positive tilt of like you're looking at what works. So can you just explain kind of the methods in this study and talk a little bit about how you used appreciative inquiry? Where I want to start off in thinking about our methods is um, taking it back to our motivations for doing this project. So where we really started was in thinking about positive movement spaces and physical cultures. So we wanted to find examples of spaces that were positive movement subcultures. So Ema had been reading around Scott Kretschmar's work from the early 2000s on positive movement subcultures, youth movement subcultures, where, uh, and, and it's uh, been also used um, recently by uh, some of the folk who were looking at the idea of meaningful physical mm -hmm. activity what's meaningful, what has personal significance to somebody. And they've drawn on Scott Kretschmar's work there as well. And so we were thinking about what, what can we find out there in the world that demonstrates for us a positive movement space in action. Um, so it, we were looking for some case studies that would follow on from a previous paper that I wrote with um, Rachel Ema and Michael Gard was on that one as well, um, which is called Looking Beyond What's Broken. And that's in sport, education and society. You know, at the time we were writing, we felt like there were not many e examples of positive movement subcultures in action in the literature. 
I think that's changed over the last few years. Um, and we are now as a field developing knowledge about what these things can look like in practice. Um, but at the time, we were trying to think about um, what sort of shift in thinking away from these sorts of traditional ways of being, these regulations about the body. What What's out there? Um, have people been shifting practices and habits? What's possible? Can we move towards a body, a body positive movement? Spaces where gender and ability are less domineering than our traditional physical cultures. Um, something that maybe would challenge that traditional Maybe it's doable at a local level. So we wanted to research a positive movement subculture um, and think about what those boundaries are between that subculture and the broader field. And so fields, I sort of think of it as like a Venn diagram with overlapping little fields. And when you cross over those boundaries and some exist within others and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, we, we, we came to be looking for some case studies and So is this where, like, how did you find uh, the London school? Like, where did that, where did that come from? Yeah, so we were looking for some case studies. And by coincidence, about that time, um, I happened to hear from a friend who um, like posted it on social media or something that she was a member of this group called Irreverent Dance. And they were doing um, an end of term celebration, like a dance recital at the end of a series, of, like a six week series of classes to celebrate what they'd learnt, like grade one ballet for adults. And uh, she posted something about it on social media. And I thought, oh, do you know what? That sounds like it might fit our bill a little bit. So we wanted to, um, I looked into it a little bit further and found out that they were advertising as um, a body positive, gender neutral and LGBTQ friendly dance space. Mm -hmm. Uh, and by advertised, I mean, so they had a website, they were um, writing magazine articles and blogs and by word of mouth, they were getting out there. Um, but, you know, they're in a very traditional physical culture that was within ballet. Right. Plus, they were also doing other types of dance. They were doing tap and Bollywood and contemporary. They did street, they did circus training. Um, and so I learned that the, the founder of Irreverent Dance had um, been asked by some friends, oh, do you know what, we'd love to learn how to do grade one ballet. And you're a ballet teacher, like he was trained. Um, we put us on a grade one ballet class, we'd love to learn. And she said, I, it just took off. Hmm. And I was like, okay, I'll, do it. I'll run it again. And then I'll run grade two. And then I'll do these other things. And it just sort of took off from there. People really appreciating her putting on this sort of space, which challenged what they expected to find within um within a dance area and so she pitched it at beginners or people who'd done dance maybe people who'd done dance as a child mm -hmm. and then left it yeah. maybe they had been rejected by dance schools in the past because of their body size for instance um and it appealed to them because it was explicitly advertised as body positive mm -hmm. um it's, it's going to sound simple when I talk about what they did. It's going to sound really simple, but apparently it was it was revolutionary for a lot of the attendees. Uh, and it's in the name, you know, irreverent dance. They were they were challenging and in in a fun sort of way. Um, so, I didn't say about the appreciative inquiry. But yeah, yeah, that's about that. I, I'm really interested in that because like I 
I've heard of appreciative inquiry, but then like as I realized, I haven't really like read up on it a lot. And when I read this, I was like, oh, that's a really cool approach to look at what works. And so, can you kind of talk about that process and what it looks like and how it takes that positive spin? Yeah, it appealed to us. One of the first reasons it appealed to us is because um, all three of us, you know, when we're, we're not trained teachers. So to go in there with a deficit approach and critiquing existing teachers and saying you shouldn't be doing it this way, we felt like that wasn't really an appropriate way to go about it. So we started um, looking into strength-based approaches where we can look at what works and we can have this kind of appreciative or affirmative approach. So appreciative inquiry really fitted that bill for us um, when we were trying to find examples of positive movement subcultures um so yeah appreciative inquiry was it kind of came out of organizational research positive psychology where people were trying to organize were trying to research organizations uh from a, a positive standpoint start from an affirmative standpoint because they said your mindset when you begin your research is really going to shape how you go about it and what you find eventually in the end so have a positive mindset. And if you work from strengths, then, and, and if your participants know that you're working from a position of strengths and what works rather than deficits, their mindset changes and their approach to being involved, especially if it's organizational research, maybe action research of some kind where you want people to be on board, you want them to invest in what you're doing and go along with the changes that you're suggesting, then coming from a strength-based perspective is going to, is going to have that much more than a deficit-based approach. Um, so within an appreciative inquiry, what they've got is this 4D approach. Um, and it's like a cycle. So it's a bit like a sort of um, cold learning cycle or a reflective cycle um, where you've got discover, dream, design, and destiny. And those four Ds should um, structure what you did. Now, within this case study, we just did the first two Ds. So we did discover and we did dream. So discovery is about finding out what is there within the case study, finding out what works, discover the best of what is. And then the second D is dream, which says, um, let's now dream about what could be. But starting from that point of what works, let's do more of that. Um, how can we dream about making more of the stuff that works because mm -hmm. the deficit approach you you take away the bad thing and what are you left with you don't then have a thing to replace it with mm -hmm. so yeah it was coming from that process so we didn't go through the full ai process but it was it was the gist of it it was all about um starting off that process of thinking about what's there in action um and appreciative inquiry as a, as a methodology has kind of taken off within the pe and support mm -hmm. pedagogy field so there's been a few other people that are taking this on as well. So yeah, it's a good methodology to have, yeah. So has there been critique of AI in, in the sense of because you're going in there as a positive mindset, do you feel like you could like miss some of the flaws of things or is it just like, that's just not what you're looking for. You're going in there with a strengths-based approach to see what works and not working worrying about what doesn't. Has there been critique in, in the field about that? Yeah, they have, but you, you've you spotted it there, like how we can then argue back against it is, um, so yeah, there have been critiques of it. Um, people saying, 
how do we ever learn if we don't critique? And, and the whole part of critical analysis is that you you may, you probably will find flaws. Uh, you can't ignore them. So, yeah, we, we people that use appreciative inquiry are then going to say, it's not that we're uncritical. It's not that we're going to avoid or ignore anything that doesn't work. Um, but we just want to have that mindset of being positive about things. And for me, it's it's within that second D, that dream, is you go, well, if we want to dream about what might be better in the future and how we can work towards that, yeah, part of that is going to be finding the things that don't work quite so well. But we've got then the strengths that we can either replace the bad stuff with these strengths or we can do more of those things that are working so that we can get around mm -hmm. what's not working. So, yeah, and it's not to be... Not it's not all sunshine. It's all, it's not all just being positive about something. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, we do have a critical approach to it. So um, just a shift in mindset, really, away from the deficit thinking. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit more about the specific participants in this uh, irreverent dance program? Like, who were they? You talked a little bit about you know some may have had danced before and then kind of left it and came back. But um, can you talk about why they chose to be there and what kind of the body positive movement brought them in like what type of person walks into a reverent dance yeah um so quite a lot of them not all of them but quite a lot of them were also active within lgbtq fields um part of their friendship groups for some of them more of a community kind of thing um pride marches and things like that they were involved in that sort of thing so um, maybe had that kind of community already and that brought them in. Uh, so they're all adults and um, I mean, there were, there were varying uh, feelings about their bodies, various uh, relationships with their bodies. Um, some also would have been active in sort of body positive movements, maybe fat activism and that kind of thing. I don't mean that they were all activists, but they're just kind of aware and they might have that sort of mindset themselves that I'm trying to change my relationship with my body. So I'm aware of movements that can help me to feel better, to have a better relationship with myself and my body. Um, so yeah, may have been rejected. Um, some of the teachers had had that too, had danced as children and then been told, you're not going to stay slender enough to be a good dancer. And that, as for a teenager, is going to make them leave. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, so, it's so fixed. It's like, why can't somebody just take part in it? And they were told, no, you can't. Um, or really encouraged to leave this space. And it re when it rejects somebody, of course, they're going to leave. But a lot of them still felt like, you know, dance is something that I want to do. I want to try it. Um, lots of them had done other dance schools. They named uh, sort of mainstream, well-known brands of dance schools and said, I tried it. I went there. Oh, it was not for me the way in which all the other dancers were behaving and the way in which they might behave towards me as somebody that looks non-normative how then do I fit in there and so that habitus thing they were like it's not for me I don't fit in there so I won't I won't bother in that field 
Um, some of them were just like, I just like physical activity. I just like being active. Um, and I heard about this thing. Let's give it a go. Sounds like it's going to be not not stressful and not like over the top, like practicing all the time and stuff like that. So I want this easygoing kind of celebration of movement sort of thing. So, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how the learners kind of celebrated their body capabilities? Because the, the irreverent dance was all about what you're celebrating, what your body can do, what not what it can't. And like maybe some of their practice and how are they crossing the boundary from, you know, some of them came in with hating their bodies and they learned to love their body. And so can you talk about how they move from their this like body negativity to body positivity throughout the program? So within our paper, we use three metaphors for uh, thinking about the boundaries between the fields and the positions that these people were coming from. And we want to think about crossing, transforming or shifting boundaries. So as I said earlier about fields being like this Venn diagram of overlapping spaces. So when they crossed boundaries or they or they transformed boundaries or they shifted those boundaries and we use that as sort of a metaphor throughout this paper so there were boundaries around the fields of ballet and uh, boundaries around the field of dance as kind of like a broader field that ballet sits in and then we've got this sort of overlapping field of of gender and sexuality and yeah they they crossed or transformed or shifted the boundaries between those fields as they operated within this little subfield of irreverent dance. Um, yeah, body positivity was uh, what is one of the major things that we talk about in this paper. So, uh, yeah, many of them were coming from a position where they they didn't have that. They weren't positive about themselves and their bodies. Um, and one of the first things we pick up in the paper is about when they could claim an identity as a dancer. That's when they could as part of when they could start to shift towards being a bit more body positive about themselves, having a changed relationship. So be it, having an identity as a dancer saying, you know, I am a dancer um, came from a few things. Uh, so some of the things that they, they've tried to do with an irreverent dance was really reflect on and celebrate the achievement that they'd had within a short space of time. So we're talking six or eight week uh, mm -hmm. weekly classes. And so you look back over a six-week class and go, look, at the beginning, you didn't know anything. Now at the end, you're doing a dance. And they always had an end-of-term celebration where dancers could uh, invite family and friends to come and watch, sort of like a dance recital. And they would run it just doing the movements that they'd learned throughout those six weeks. And the teacher would lead it. It wasn't like they'd had to choreograph a dance or anything. Um, but for a lot of them, they talked about how this kind of performance sounds like it should have been a bit scary for them, but uh, it was this way to celebrate um, what I've learned. And I didn't know what a plie was and I couldn't do it at the beginning. And now, look, I've done it. Um, like, and and that this, this is what dancers do. And look, I'm doing it. And therefore, I am a dancer, so I, I can do it. So he gained a habitus as a dancer because they're doing what dancers do, they could learn to dance. So it was kind of, it was kind of, yeah, crossing that boundary from non-dancer to dancer. But because they're within this particular subfield, 
where the values are different. In irreverent dance, they're not valuing the same things that they might do in the broader ballet field. That's when they could develop this habitus. They weren't low status. They weren't low on physical capital because the value was not placed on the slender body, the highly able, the gender normative body that wears the right kit in the right colour and all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, they were still they were able to do those technical aspects because they were taught them. It's like within this subfield, you can still come and learn the technical aspects of this dance if you want to. Um, I wanted to read a quote actually from uh, two of the participants. And, and you know, one says, um, a lot of emphasis is put on how far you've come and in how much time and what a short amount of time that is. They've had eight hours of formal training. Look, now they're doing a dance. And uh, the second quote, um, which is where the title of the paper comes from as well. Um, it's really amazing what my body can now do. I didn't know I could stand on my tiptoes on one foot and swing my other leg around with my arm and do it in a really controlled way. So they were able to see themselves as graceful, which was one of the key kind of physical capital aspects of being a dancer. If I can see myself as graceful, I can see myself as able and I can see myself as a dancer. I, yeah, you could say it's subjective, like they're not objectively good dancers, whatever that might mean, but they didn't have to be getting slimmer as a result of doing this physical activity. They didn't have to act in gender appropriate ways, wear the right clothing and the right color and do the right things. So graceful could then be applied to non-normative bodies. They mm -hmm. could see themselves as graceful. And I know in one um, of the other quotes you put in that uh, one of the students said that they felt like they were not graceful, but then they realized, well, dance teaches grace. So through dance, they became more graceful and they were like, well, why didn't I ever think about that? So it was a barrier to them because I guess society has said, you're not graceful, so therefore you can't dance versus you can become more graceful through practicing dance. Just get in, just get in the room and, and participate. So I, I thought that was a really cool explanation of kind of the boundaries that society puts on certain people of doing certain things, but the process is actually inside the room. So as soon as they get in there, they can start realizing what their body can do. Absolutely. You know, we, we teach you how to do that. Um, and I think that the boundary that they're crossing there is one of ability so, and sort of social construction of what ability is, and I guess we see that in physical active, we see that in physical education spaces. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know whether streaming and and sets are typical within PE in the states, but lots of schools do it um, in the UK, where students will be assessed on their ability in their first year of high school, and then put in a set based on their ability at that first mm -hmm. in the first year, and then it frames everything that they do in PE for a few years about just being able being good at a sport or an activity yeah. yeah so you talked about boundaries can you talk about the transformation for the gender sexuality boundaries that that some of these dancers had and kind of how body image plays in there Yeah, I think I think it's related to this ability thing again. So um, being non-normative in a gender sense can also be seen as unable within this environment. 
within 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 a dance field or a ballet field if you're unable um it relates also to because because gender is so strictly um regulated mm-hmm. about the types of movements that people can do uh, as a girl or a boy within the space of dance so yeah there's this like connection between gender and ability if you're not graceful you're not feminine in a hetero feminine sense because hetero femininity is associated with slenderness and so if you don't fit in with that you then can't see yourself as this kind of dancer who can be great graceful um so that, yeah there was quite a lot of freedom of expression in irreverent dance around gender and sexuality um you know i said earlier that irreverent dance sort of overlapped with lgbtq fields as well quite a lot of them would also be um, members of communities that would be active activist in that sense um so that shaped then the subfield so um it's an influence within that within that subfield of irreverent dance um irreverent dance was involved in undoing gender in some ways in a dance sense so uh one of the aspects of dance that is gendered uh within ballet is dancing on point so dancing right on top of your tiptoes is typically something that only girls and women would learn to do and male dancers just don't do that uh but dancers within irreverent dance we're told, well, we're going to do a point class. If you want to come, come and learn. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter who you are. You are absolutely able to learn how to do that. Um, go for it. It's there if you want it. And one of the other dancers um, was talking about men's steps within, I think it was a polka, kind of a polka uh, as part of a, an element of ballet. Um, can you tell yet that I'm not a ballet dancer? <laughs> I'm not a dancer. I've never danced in my life. Um, my daughter does. So I'm now seeing from the age, from a five-year-old perspective, what it is like in a traditional mm-hmm. kind of the whole pink, pink down to your feet sort of thing. And this is how you dance and your hair's got to be done and all that sort of thing. Yes, it's very interesting. Anyway, yeah. So one of the participants talked about like, if you want to learn the men's steps within polka, learn it because you like jumping and you enjoy the strength mm-hmm. and the freedom that you get from jumping around doesn't matter how you identify mm-hmm. um come and learn it and yeah. it's there for you to learn so can you talk a little bit more about what did irreverent dance do into the environment that created and maybe challenged these gender boundaries and i know one of the things that made it more of a safe space was if you think about a traditional ballet class you walk in there's this gigantic mirror all along the wall and you talk about this in the paper of how irreverent dance pulled a curtain halfway so it wasn't like we're going to cover the whole entire mirror mirrors are bad it was like hey we're going to cover it halfway if you feel like mirrors are a detriment to you you know, and your body positive movement, or you just don't want to continuously watch yourself perform, then you can be on this side. But if you feel like a mirror gives you good feedback, which it does in, in ballet, like, then you can be on this side. So can you talk about what are those things that irreverent dance did that made it a more uh, safer place or a better place for them or? Yeah. So um, the teachers told me about this and also some of the learners mentioned it, that uh, when when learners would, would join day one of a new series of classes, uh, the teacher would sit them down and say, here's the deal in this in this space. This is going to be a body positive space. And 
you are you are going to be kind to yourself. If you wouldn't judge somebody else and be unkind to somebody else, don't do it to yourself either. Sounds a really simple point, but some of the dancers said that like that was a major epiphany for them. They were like, wow, yeah, I would never say anything like this to somebody else, so why would I treat myself like this? Um, so, yeah, so we've got some adaptations to the space, like the mirrors, and we've got the kind of establishing the ground rules about behaviour towards yourself right from the beginning. Um, other elements of it, some of it's physical safety and some of it is kind of like emotional support and guess. So uh, they, they were allowed to learn at their own pace. So there was a set syllabus. They were maybe going through grade one within six weeks, like really blitzed in there, get it in there. Um, but you learn at your own pace. And if you don't learn something, don't worry about it. And if you can't make the move because let's say you've got a mobility problem of some kind or you're um, not feeling particularly flexible on any given day, if you can't like get all the way down there, so to speak, into a movement, then approximate it. So if you can't do a full plie, do a half and you're approximating it. You're still kind of learning what that move means. Um, and everything is possible within this space. You learn what you want to learn. Um, if you want to sit something out, sit it out. Don't worry about it. Um, so the I guess the final part of creating a safe environment in, in a sense of like supporting the dancers was this celebratory end of season thing that they did where, um, where the dancers were in, invited to bring their family and friends along with them and say like look here here is me being a dancer and so some of for some of them that was that was celebrating this identity as a dancer but could also provide them with a sort of um a safe space with their other dancers with their cohorts again to then celebrate with other people and bring them into the family of id and say you know this is what we're up to yeah it's it's in interesting the way that you said they say, hey, if you can do half a plie, do half. If you can't do a full, don't do a full and modify it. It made me think of yoga classes. If you go to a yoga class, they're like, hey, if you can't do this pose, here are ways to adapt it. And if you can't put your heels all the way down, don't worry about it. You're not there yet. It doesn't matter. And so I feel like yoga is this like ultimate, if you go to the right place, I guess, or if you have the right environment of like, hey, just adapt it. And here are all of the blocks and all of the, you know, you know, whatever, the straps and stuff that you can use to modify every single pose. And that's not as rigid because everybody has a different body. But I think ballet is like, it's like so strict. Um, so I guess as a transition into this last question, I'll kind of bring this back to uh, sports or physical education and you talked about irreverent dance being this uh, successful safe space that really enabled the dancers to claim an identity as a dancer so if you can kind of end with telling us a little bit more about the difference you believe there is between dance and other sports and the significance of identifying as a dancer for for these participants Yeah, I think there's there's elements of um, dance which are different from other um, physical cultural spaces. So 
I mean, you might find it also in other sports or physical cultures that have um, an aesthetic, some kind of body aesthetic associated with them. So rhythmic and artistic gymnastics, synchronized swimming, maybe, where you've got this emphasis on what the body looks like as well mm-hmm. as what it can do. Um, figure skating, those sorts of activities. So, yeah, they've all got some element of dance, I guess, as well. They, they share some things, performing. But, you know, I have I have not researched those areas, so I don't know fully. Um, and having said that, actually, I think there are other sports, team sports, that maybe don't have a body aesthetic, don't perform where your body is the performance, but still regulate the body. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in appearance-based ways, too. So just this week, I was reading about how the rugby football union in this country um, has a new trans inclusion policy uh, that has actually been critiqued by some um, trans activists uh, including Stonewall who've said what they're planning on doing the RFU is um, basing the inclusion criteria for trans women on height and weight so you have to be under a certain height and under a certain weight in order to be able to take part in women's rugby and Stonewall pointed out, well, the, the, where you're going to put these boundaries will mean that trans women have to be shorter and smaller than a lot of their cis women teammates. Hmm. So that's discriminatory, yes. and that's not inclusive of everybody. So can can we have a rethink of yeah. this? So even within a sport that doesn't have this body performance thing, gendered bodies are still being regulated based on their appearance and their size in that sort of place so yeah it's not just body aesthetic based sports and physical cultures that we see this in really yeah Yeah. and i think in in any sport really because we're performing and once you get to a certain level and people start watching you perform whether that's at a you know a secondary school team sport or a, a university team or a professional league people are watching you so when they're watching you perform, yeah. whether that's Australian rules football or soccer or wrestling or whatever it is, people are looking at your body. So even though they're not giving you points on aesthetics like your landing or your appearance in gymnastics, we're still looking at that person and looking at them going, oh, that person is X, Y, Z, muscular, fit, lean. Oh, that person is really like overweight for this sport but they you know so i i think it's interesting that yeah i think in dance and gymnastics and diving and all these other things where like aesthetics is so important it's highlighted but we also highlight and i think that there's a lot of you know for men body dysmorphia because they're trying to be athletic and they just like look at their bodies as weak and not strong and they go on this binge of weight training to try to bulk up and become yeah. big and um yeah so but yeah Joanne, definitely yeah yeah thank thank you so much for for sharing the work i i found it really really interesting um we'll have the full article in the um or the link to the article on the in the notes section uh but i want to uh, appreciate your time and 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 your knowledge i really uh, thank you also for introducing me to Appreciative Inquiry because I think I'm going to go find a book and read more about it because that, that seems like something I'd be really interested in.
great stuff. Um, yeah, I just want to acknowledge my co-authors, uh, Rachel Sanford and Ema Enright, and a massive thank you to the irreverent dance teachers and participants, without whom we wouldn't have learned any of this, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll probably have to have Rachel on because she's been a co-author on a bunch of papers that I've done with other people and she hasn't been on the podcast. So Rachel, if you're <laughs> listening, give us a call. We'll, we'll get you on. So uh, I also want to thank Alba Rodriguez for her help in producing the podcast. And uh, that's all we got. Thanks for listening. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.